Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. I am delighted today to be speaking with Amanda Janu, who is the Economics and Policy Lead for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which is a global collaboration of organizations, governments, movements, and changemakers committed to designing economies that work in service of people and planet. Amanda is an economic policy expert with over a decade of experience working with governments and international development institutions around the world. Her work aims to build just and sustainable economies through well-being-oriented and participatory policy design processes. Prior to joining We All, Amanda worked for the United Nations and the African Development Bank as an industrial policy and economic systems change expert. As a Fulbright researcher, she explored the relationship between international trade and cooperative enterprise resilience. She graduated from Cambridge University with a Master's of Philosophy and Development Studies and heralds from the Green Mountain State of Vermont in the United States. I had such a nice time chatting with Amanda. She has incredible insights, a lot of worldly experience, and is just a really positive voice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. Amanda Janu, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I'm delighted you're here. Looking forward to the conversation. I really appreciate your time. Given what you're working on, what do you see as the chasm or chasms as they relate to the well-being economy? Mm. I think the major chasm tends to be our limited imaginations when it comes to the economy. So we tend to speak and think about the economy as something abstract that happens out there beyond our control. And that often makes us forget that we are the economy and therefore it can be redesigned in line with our social and ecological goals and it's not simply given. Yeah. So I want to dig into all of that, but I guess uh, what you raise is a really interesting point straight away, which is we have these perceptions of what we deem to be the economy. And I guess maybe could you just start by saying, how do you define or even think about or conceptualize what the economy is? Absolutely. So I normally describe the economy as just the way we produce and provide for one another. And so it's an aspect of life on this planet. It's inherently our interconnection, a means by which we improve our collective quality of life. And so we tend, I would say, particularly in the United States, to really just think about business and finance when we think about the economy. But the reality is the way that we produce and provide for one another, everything we produce is first and foremost from the earth, right? And everything we provide is valuable insofar as it contributes to our well-being. But the type of institutions which are, are embedded within our economy or help to govern that system are not just businesses, they're finance, but also our government, right? The public sector, um, as well as the commons or non-monetary aspects of life, of, of the ways in which we provide one another as families and communities. And, and all of that is a part of this system. Um, and so it's about yeah, recognizing the important role that each of these play and realigning with social and ecological goals. So I'm curious from your perspective, like how like the average person thinks about the economy. First of all, how do they think about it? And and why do they think about it in that way? Mm. Well, obviously, I can't speak for all people. But I would say normally when we hear about the economy, it, we hear about it in terms of GDP sort of fluctu- fluctuations or growth rates, um, stock market, you know, dips or rises, maybe employment figures. So that tends to craft the economy as sort of a system of wealth and profit generation, um, really governed and controlled by very large multinationals or investment firms. And so that tends to sort of reify itself a lot in terms of a a narrow understanding of of what the economy is and, and ultimately who governs and controls it. I guess the the main question I have is, yeah, why is the economy not working? Like, what is it about it that is something that doesn't lead to well-being? And, and why are you focused on changing that? Mm, yeah. Well, so the current economic system, as we've sort of constructed it, is very much oriented towards growing itself, right? Like to increase profit and wealth as 
quickly as possible. And it doesn't actually recognize, for example, um, the, the value and importance of, of our natural world in any of these processes. And so it's incredibly exploitive for both people and planet in terms of concentrating wealth more and more into fewer hands as opposed to ensuring that we're supporting institutions that ensure more equitable distribution of time, wealth, and power, but also critically of, of teaching, treating all other life on this planet as if they were just an input into the goods, right, that we see around us as opposed to having real value in and of themselves. And so that has led, obviously, to the planned obsolescence of climate change, the biodiversity loss, as well as to the huge growth of inequality that we see within and amongst countries with, I think, Oxfam coming out recently with a report that showed 10 billionaires doubled their wealth since the pandemic, while 99% of humanity was left worse off, right? <laughs> so we've built and sort of rigged a system um, that is inherently not unequitable and sustainable by design. So when you say we, what, what do you mean by that? Who is responsible? Mm, well, again, I, I do, I think it's really important to remember that we are the economy, yeah, that we are all a part of this system by which we produce and provide for one another. Now, obviously, within our current economic system, some individuals or institutions have more power within how we have designed this current um, system. And so you can say there's the neoclassical sort of economic ideas that tend to still dominate a lot of our economic thinking that still holds you know, us all as really selfish, competitive, individualistic actors and actually then advises to encourage and reward that kind of behavior rather than recognizing that we also all have very compassionate, cooperative, interdependent aspects of, of ourselves and our identities that equally need to be nourished and supported in the world. We also have current institutions that are sort of locked into this certain way of thinking. So, you know, nation states, for example, are are often feel their stuck in this trap of needing to just continuously grow their economy so that they can take some of the wealth through taxes to fix the damages done to people and planet in the process. Um, or, you know, the huge investors or multinationals or elite 1% who are invested in this current system of, of wealth generation um, because it very much works, you know, in their interest. And so although we are all part of this system, there are different, I think, imperatives and reasons why, um, yeah, we've designed it this way. So this is all super interesting. And I have lots of questions about all of this. I want to quickly just uh, to set the, set the stage. Um, can you tell us what a well-being economy is? And then we can get onto some more details about mm -hmm. what's not working. But what, what is a well-being economy as you construe it? Yeah. So for us, a well-being economy is really an economy that begins with a different purpose. So it's about beginning with really recognizing, again, that the economy is the way we're producing and providing for one another. And so we need to be evaluating and valuing, ultimately, different economic activities and behaviors by their contribution to social and ecological well-being. And so right now, I think part of the issue is that we have forgotten that the economy is just one aspect of our societies that are embedded within a larger ecosystem. And we've held them as the economy as like sort of uh, the most important thing for so long that we tend to feel like we need to make the case, for example, why health is good for the economy rather than being able to swap that burden of proof and evaluate the economy in terms of its contribution to our health. Yeah, if that makes sense. So it's about downgrading the economy in some way so that we can then align it with social and ecological goals that we have as a society and the things that matter most. And so we talk about within we all the five needs that we really feel our economy needs to be working in service of and the first one being nature. So really working to support a safe and restored um, and cherished sort of natural world through circular and regenerative 
economic practices, more common resource governance, um, but also an economy which is evaluated by its capacity to ensure that everybody has the foundation to live a life of dignity and purpose. Um, and that we also see critically important the also need for fairness. Right? And so building an economy which by design ensures that equitable distribution of, of wealth and voice and time through social enterprises, employee-owned businesses, cooperatives, ones that are already designed to ensure more um, a more balanced power within the system. And then the sort of last two we speak to a lot is the importance of connection. So recognizing that even though we conceptualize of the economy right now almost always as, as on the basis of individuals, you can't actually have an economy of one. <laughs> it's always a system of, of relation and interconnection between the natural environment and multiple people. And, and really the thing that brings us the greatest happiness and fulfillment in our lives is is the strength of our social connections. And so building an economy that really works to support those as opposed to fragment those. And then last, but definitely not least, is the, the need for meaningful participation. So something, you know, and this is, a, this is a big one, even though we talk about the well-being economy, we recognize that one of the major issues of contemporary economic thought is this one-size-fits-all philosophy that across space and time you know, all economies are the same. Because if we think of it as the way we produce and provide for one another, obviously that's going to be influenced by your history, your geography, your culture, and so many other factors. So we're talking about well-being economies, and it's important that the shape and form of those are a reflection of your local context, but also determined by your active voice and participation. And so that, for us, is sort of a broad vision of a well-being economy, but one that ultimately needs to be locally embedded and aligned. Oh, that's a really nice overview. Thank you for sharing that. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, this, this sort of um, inequality is an outcome of a society based on trying to, yeah, get as much profit as you can. I guess I'm wondering, can you really dig down into the key aspects of our economy? Is it really just the the search for profits? Is it the focus solely on economic growth? What are the key factors that make the economy as it's currently construed, construed not lead to well-being? Mm. Well, so let me also say, first of all, it's not that every aspect of our current economic system is antithetical to well-being, right? Because it is. It's a, it's a system that does connect us, right? And so to the extent to which we know that, for example, interacting with strangers is really important for our well-being, going to a coffee shop, right? And having an interaction with the barista who's serving you coffee, it's a good thing, right? And um, the fact that we have a current system which has been able to, in many places, ensure that many people, again, are not feeling insecure with their fundamental basic needs, that's a really important, right? Like foundation for our well-being. It's just that the aspect of our current system is that we are evaluating the economy by its capacity to support itself, not the capacity for it actually to work in service of our well-being. And, and from the beginning, you know, when the architects of GDP, for example, they were very clear that this shouldn't be used as a metric of well-being. It's meant to just be a metric of, of output. But somewhere along the way, we got a bit confused and we started evaluating all of our progress just by how quickly our economy was growing or how much we were producing and consuming or how much money we were generating, believing that that's all that really mattered for a good life. And what we're now very clear on is that we're growing really quickly, but the world is on fire and people are miserable and there's huge amounts of inequity and, and starting to question what the economy is and for. And so, I mean, I speak to different maybe aspects of our current economic system, if that's what you're interested in, that lead to, let's say, concentrations of, of wealth into the hands of fewer people or to, you know, the reasons why we don't, you know, the Amazon rainforest is only valued once it's cut down 
and transformed into the commodities we see around ourselves or those sort of aspects. But I think broadly, the major issue with our economy is that we view it as a means and end in of itself. And we forget that it's supposed to be working in, in purpose of something else larger. So I'm wondering from your perspective how you think this resonates with people. On the one hand, you're providing this sort of roadmap for what would by any measure be better for people and planet. On the other hand, you know, we have a situation in which everybody is already currently embedded in the system we have. Do you think that many people would see this um, as threatening? That is to say that it would disrupt the current system in a way that might lead to changes that might in the short term potentially undermine their well-being, even if in the long term everyone is better off. How, how do you, and again, you're not speaking for everybody, but how do you think about people might think about this change uh, from the way our current system is to what you're proposing? Yeah, well, actually, handy enough, the Global Commons Alliance did a survey, I think it was in 2011, which found that across the G20 countries, we would think of the winners of this system, right, in terms of their them having the highest GDP rates, um, 74% of people really believe that the economy should be working in a way that is supportive of the health and well-being of people and planet rather than just focusing on on the creation of, of profit and wealth. And even in the United States, where you'd probably assume people are a little further back, it, it was still 68% of people in the U.S. believe that. So this idea is definitely resonating. I think after the financial crisis, there was uh, there started to be a sort of a renaissance in new economic thinking and, and a desire for different ways to analyze societal progress in a different way to measure and monitor and to orient um, our economic policies and systems. But then since COVID, I, there's just been, I, I don't know, there's been an incredible, I think, momentum in this movement and these ideas really not only resonating, but really motivating people to believe that a different system is possible. And so whereas with some people have described it after the financial crisis, people recognize there were things wrong, but wanted to sort of get back to normal. After COVID, I think people have really recognized that normal isn't good. Yeah. And so there is this, this desire for an alternative, hopeful vision for this system towards which to work and orient. Um, and so I'm an optimist, but I, I also work into the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. I, I feel like I'm seeing first, and witnessing how much this idea is really resonating with people across across the spectrum and from different types of, of areas of work. And I want to ask you about that in just a moment. But before we do, I, I have a couple more quick questions. The first one is, I, I want to know about the logistics of this. Can you have a well-being economy that just springs from this uh, economy that's not about well-being? Or... Do you have to dismantle the economy as it is and start anew? Mm. So that's a really good question because <laughs> I'm going to speak personally here, right? Um, in the United States, I've noticed, for example, that there tends to be, you know, people who are just like, let's just tinker, tinker with the existing system. And then they're sort of like, let's burn it all down, right? And build it anew. And I would say for me, I'm, I stand somewhere in the middle there where I think we need very deep transformation of our current system. But I also, I guess, do not believe that if we burn down that system, I would be there to somehow be the philosopher king that would reconstruct it, right? And so I, I want to try to protect as much life on this planet as possible through a very conscious, but also strategic redesign. Because working in international development, I've been in communities where you have an overnight systems change, normally from a coup or some other kind of event. And the level of, of suffering that comes from that and the destabilization is, yeah, to me, it's not a great idea. And so being clear that systems change, economic systems change takes some time but we can get there if we're very clear on on where we're trying to go. And maybe it takes a decade, right? But to be really clear there and to put our energy, our creative effort towards it, um, yeah, I think it's fully possible. So that raises some interesting questions about 
who we are again, because the system is currently, as it's currently construed, is really working well from the billionaires you just mentioned. And plenty of other people are doing fantastic and would be, I think, opposed to changing it in any way. And so that those so there's vested interest. So that's that's a challenge in terms of getting people on the same page for visioning something different. And then there's a second level of this, which is, and I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Like conceptually, how does change happen? What what has to uh, occur for this vision that you and others have for a different kind of economy that works for everyone? How does that change happen? Mm. So maybe a good example for this, and I should say as well, I come, my background is in economic policy, so I tend to focus a little more on, on the policy, let's say, examples, although really there are so many examples of this that are from like a movement-building perspective, which I think is important to speak to as well. But let's say one example is that we have helped to build the well-being economy government, and that is currently New Zealand, Iceland, Scotland, Wales, and Canada. And they have all developed alternative indicators to GDP, which are centered on social and ecological dimensions of well-being. And in Wales, for example, the way that they developed that new set of metrics framework sort of orientation point for government and for society in terms of what success looks like was through asking people, what kind of Wales do you want to live leave for your children and grandchildren. And ultimately, they ended up with this um, framework that includes seven well-being goals around having a more equitable Wales, a healthier Wales, a more culturally vibrant Wales, a more um, globally responsible Wales, for example. And, and that became an important higher-level goal and vision for which, towards which to work for the government and also for the society at large with clear targets and goals and indicators that would cross it along them. But importantly, they also realized that it requires a different way of working and thinking in order to achieve them. And so they put these principles of governance reform in terms of taking more preventative approaches, right? So rather than just constantly trying to put out the symptoms and the fires of the current system to really try to move upstream and to think about what preventative measures are going to reduce or mitigate those um, crises in the first place. They also focused a lot on the idea of long-term thinking, yeah, which to me was it's interesting having worked in international development. You know, every, every country has a d- development plan, right? Like a longer-term 10, 20-year vision of where they're trying to go. And it's more of an issue among high-income countries who have bought into this fairly neoliberal ideology that if you just take a hands-off approach, um, that the system should somehow self-regulate and you should only get involved if there's like a major issue, right? And this is coming back to an idea that the, the state has a role in really helping to um, set a, a longer-term vision of where you're trying to go and then mold and direct the system accordingly. And then the last three were about integration and collaboration, right? So ensuring that every government agency is working, like breaking down silos. So they're all working collectively towards the achievement of those seven goals and like collaboration with the broader society at large as well, recognizing that this transformation can't just happen from the top down, which is why the final point around participation, I think is really exciting because around the world, we're not only seeing these new ideas around the economy or economic systems, but also huge innovations in participatory and deliberative democracy. And I think those two are fundamentally interconnected because the failures of our political and economic system are, are kind of two sides of the, of the same point. And so in Wales, although they have this national strategy, what they ultimately ended up doing was decentralizing um, most of the, the specific sort of planning to multi-stakeholder groups within the towns or cities to really develop plans and strategies that were made sense for that place to that would work towards the achievement of the national goals. And so these, this is an example, right, um, which comes from more of a policy base, but of how some governments are really trying to reorient our understanding of progress and redefine um, the structures therein. 
And in Wales, for example, they removed GDP entirely from any of their economic strategies or processes and even defined prosperity as one of their goals as creating an innovative, like high-skilled, productive um, economy that is in respect planetary boundaries and is supportive of getting to like net zero. So already within their idea of prosperity is the recognition of, of being in alignment with, with nature's limits. How would you respond to a critic who might argue that, yeah, there's some good examples going on, but these countries and places are still embedded in fundamentally unsustainable global economy. And just as an example, you know, the United Nations has the sustainable development goals. One of those is explicitly for economic growth. So what do you say to someone who argues, all this sounds great, but this is mostly just greenwashing. It's people trying to ameliorate the problems superficially in a system that cannot fundamentally be sustainable just based on how it's created and, and, and the goals and sort of premises of it. How would you respond to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say, you know, it, the point around the global economic system is really key here because it is, you know, for us, we're working with communities and initiatives, local sort of state, regional, but the level and the space for self-determination is legitimately constrained by our global economic system. And, and when we think about particularly for the majority world who are bound in so many ways to having their development level defined by GDP per capita and therefore what kind of lending, right, they're going to get and what kind of repayment and all of these things, it's a lot harder for them to break out of of this way of thinking. Now, one really positive example I'll give is that last year, the German development agency, GIZ, the focus of their annual conference was all on this question of, of questioning whether or not development should be defined by growth, economic growth, or by well-being. And now, the fact that for me, yeah, like having worked in international development for a long time, that any development agency is questioning this is hugely encouraging. But similarly, when you think about at the United Nations, the Stockholm Plus 50, like the current Secretary General is talking a lot about how we need to create new definitions of progress, move away from GDP, and really value nature. And so this is emerging, right? Like there is an emergence and a recognition across a lot of different global levels. One of the things that we're trying to do this year within We All is to support with bringing more hopeful vision to our global economic system, which can support with, with a reimagining of the governance systems as well. And this requires in many ways for visionaries who are not economists, actually, to come together to help explore and think through the, what connects us across space and time and how can we really produce and provide for one another in a way that is in balance and harmony with one another and with our natural environment as a starting point to then think about what are the current network systems dynamics that play in our global economic system that are aligned or not. So we can then mobilize our, our global network of members and actors and governments to collectively work towards advocating for those shifts. Cause it is, you know, it is going to be necessary for us to build different types of governance and development paradigms and approaches. And I think it's happening, but yeah, there's ways in which we, we ourselves can help to also push for, for those shifts as well. And I want to move in just a second to starting talking about more specifics about what's going on and what, and what you see as necessary. Before we do that, though, I mean, you've just given a very nice overview, but it's, it's, we have very little time here and it's, it's cursory. Can you point listeners to a book maybe or some outlet in addition to your uh, website, of course, where they can get a better sense of some of these issues, the problems, the history of our economy and why it's so important? Is there, is there something you could point to for, for, as a recommendation? Absolutely. Well, first recommendation that I would obviously give is to, you know, check out our website. It's at weall.org, like W-E-A-L-L dot O-R-G. And there's a lot of resources that are there. Um, in terms of books, it really, 
there are a lot of really amazing books that are out there. So I don't know if you've explored on your podcast already Donut Economics. Not yet. Not directly. No, no. Mm -mm. Yeah. Okay. So Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, I think is a really wonderful um, book on, on um, a different way of thinking about economics in particular, but then also my former colleague, Catherine Trebek also wrote a book, um, which I think speaks a little bit more to the economy as well. And it's called The Economics of Arrivals and sort of the, the shift in when do we know as a society that we have enough, right? And what does that mean in terms of how we would reorient our economic policies and practices accordingly? So those would be two recommendations. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll put a link to those on the website. Uh, okay, so now I want to I shift. I, I want to get a sense from you about um, not only how this transformation could happen, but also what's going on and, and what's required. So why don't we just start? I mean, if you were able to and could make changes immediately, mm-hmm. what kind of changes do you think are necessary to start shifting towards a well-being economy? Mm. <clears throat> well, I think the first shift is to actually have a deliberative process of discussing what we really feel matters for a good life. Um, because we, there's, it's deep inside of us and we all know in some way that the things that matter most are, you know, connection to nature and to the natural environment. So for example, whenever I ask somebody, what do you love about where you live? Nine times out of 10, it's people and planet, right? There's some, Thing about the nature of where you live or the, the community and the people who are around. And then when you identify that and then you realize that why aren't those the things that are being prioritized in terms of our decision making, it starts to beg the question of what we need to have as our sort of like North Star and orientation point. And so one of the things I see in my work, for example, is that a lot of people have these well-being sort of frameworks or visions or indicators, but it's one thing to articulate it. It's another one to internalize it. Because we've also internalized a lot of our current economic logic in terms of thinking that our own self-worth and value and purpose is purely in terms of, you know, making money. Um, and we see that the, the ramifications of that in the United States, for example, where the majority of people feel like they have a job that need not or should not exist, right? They feel like they're doing something that is contributing nothing to the world or actually leaving it worth a lot. And so if I could have a magic wand, it would be to take those, those really deliberatively, participatorily developed visions and, and priorities around well-being. And then to think about which are the economic activities and behaviors that are positively contributing to that and which ones are the ones that are negatively so that they can be encouraged and discouraged accordingly, right? Because for a very long time, we've encouraged and rewarded large corporations, entrepreneurs, investors, because they're the most efficient at generating wealth. But if we think about who is the most efficient at generating well-being, it's a very different kind of set of, of actors and behaviors. Um, and I think that would be a really powerful starting point for redesigning the economy. Apparently. Yeah, that's really eloquent. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I guess I want to ask you about your experiences. You've been meeting with people in various levels of government and so forth. And I think you just really laid out well the fact that most people recognize that the economy is not working and that things we care about are really in our local space. So you're, you've been talking to cities and so forth. I guess I'm wondering, how does somebody like a mayor of a city, for example, start to really address these things in ways that actually lead to changes on the ground when, again, they're embedded in a global economy? What, what are you hearing from people and, and seeing at the local level and what, what's being done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say that it really depends on the country. But I would say, like Sydney, Australia, for example, is doing some really incredible innovative work around trying to mold, melt, like, Circular economy initiatives, which are about removing, moving from linear to production processes to really reusing, repairing, repurposing any sort of material that comes into our, our economic system with community wealth building, which is about 
um, using what they call anchor institutions. So these are like the institutions that are in any community that aren't going to. So that's maybe like a university or a hospital or things like that to be the anchor points of procurement for the local economy, um, to buy more locally, to keep money circulating around and, and also building cooperative and more democratically governed business enterprise models to ensure more equitable distribution of wealth, right? And like these kind of strategies that are being explored and adopted by cities as ways in which to reduce inequality, to reduce the environmental sort of impact on um, the waste and, you know, on our natural environment are really inspiring. Now, of course, you know, cities are embedded within often like states or certain regions that have their own policy that are also embedded with federal governments that are also part of this broader global system. And so there's a lot that can be done, but it's a lot that ultimately will also need to be aligned with with the national or federal policy. And so in in the United States, for example, we have a law that doesn't allow like a state to have its own currency. But a community can develop an alternative currency, for example, which would, like, let's say, based on time banking, right? Where it's like people directly connecting and give of a service or a skill that they have to others. And on that basis, get a certain note or donation. And, and that type of system can actually be really powerful for, for supporting more human connection, more like local economic development. And so these sort of experimentations, I think that we're seeing in a lot of, a lot of different cities um, around the world to try to yeah, re-embed and they feel like you have a little more power within the economic system. And so governments at the city level are not only exploring these strategies, but also in the same way as I sort of mentioned with Wales or with Canada, going through a process of also developing a new metrics, like new metrics and definitions of progress for the city towards which to orient as well. So you've just been giving some really nice examples of, of how an economy can be addressed in different ways, especially at local levels. A lot of this is uh, conceptual. You are pointing to some specific examples, though, and I guess I'm just wondering if you could provide some examples where you have seen interventions put in place and then speak to how that actually affects individuals or or communities at the local level really specifically and tangibly. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a wide range, I guess, of of examples. Um, The one would be, I don't know if you've, you're familiar at all with um, Cooperation Jackson? No. You heard about this? No? At all. I really recommend you check it out. But this is a, quite a powerful example, which is coming from Jackson, Mississippi. And what they did was to mobilize the community to really push for building uh, a solidarity economy and like a worker-owned, um, democratically sort of managed cooperative enterprise structures within the city itself. And so this is a city that has, has experienced, you know, uh, you know, centuries, right, of huge amounts of racial inequities and um, income disparities and, and senses of, of disempowerment. And, and the ability of this, this group and this movement to be able to not only work to reform and start into um, a lot of the ways in which the, the enterprises are structured in the area, but ultimately get a mayor elected who was very much in line with the vision of a solidarity economy and the passing of, of these, these kind of policies has been successful in not only making people feel like they have a real power and voice over their, their place in their collective destiny, but also ensuring that there are those um, reductions and these really harmful inequalities and, and a rebalancing right of, of power and, and privilege within that space. Now, how that has ultimately touched people's hearts, right, or their own their own lives. Like, I think I'll hopefully you can do a, a podcast in the future with um, someone from their their group, for example. So I wouldn't want to, yeah, speak for them, but it's yeah, it's a pretty powerful example of, of the ways in which this transformation can happen. 
Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I guess I'm wondering what you would say to someone who, yeah, is is uh, amenable to this critique of the economy, who who wants to see something different, maybe a listener to this podcast. What would you tell them to do if they care about this? What, what, what would you say? Yeah, well, if you are interested in this, so first of all, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, we all, is a global collaboration of different organizations, governments, businesses, activists, movements, and change makers from around the world who are really committed to, to building a well-being economy and transforming our economic system. So if you're just interested in, in being a member, it doesn't cost anything, you can join and connect in with this, this global movement. Because at least for me, I'll say, I came from working at the UN in economic policy and it, thinking about the economy in a more expansive way or thinking that it might should have a different purpose also, often felt lonely, right? And so joining we all just felt like coming home in a lot of ways to be surrounded by people who were equally questioning um, the purpose of the economy and work, want to work genuinely collaboratively towards that transformation. And we also have place-based hubs, so where you'll connect with actors across space, maybe at a state level or at a city level, or it can even be nationally. And so if you're interested in, in doing more of this place-based transformative work, you can join an existing hub or start a new one, and we'd be happy to help and support whatever way we can. So in Vermont, for example, where I'm based, I've connected in with amazing, like sort of multi-stakeholder groups. So people who are coming from the business, academic, public sector, sort of think tank, um, a variety of different spaces. To We're going to be having a big event next week in Vermont, which is about bringing together about 150 different leaders or, yeah, important stakeholders from across the state to raise awareness of this idea of a well-being economy, of donut economics, of economic systems change, and, and how we can all work collaboratively towards that. And so these are kind of, yeah, examples of, of ways we want to immediately get engaged, but also I think to start off with, it's just as powerful to, to start having more conversations about this, to remember that, you know, the economy isn't a space that is reserved for academics and elites to pontificate about, right? Um, but that we have a right and responsibility to, to discuss it. And it's that system and to feel like we're empowered to transform it. And so welcome anybody, yeah, to just start engaging a little bit more in those conversations so that itself can level out and really change the world. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you. I want to end with three questions that are more personal. But before we get to that, just one last question. And, and the question really is about... Yeah, there's lots of groups who question our economic system. There's lots of other proposals. There's degrowth. There's transition towns. You all are doing amazing work. Obviously, I've looked into it. It's super persuasive and I think um, really exciting. I guess I'm wondering about just politically, how do these disparate groups who all seemingly care about similar ends, how do we come together and work together in ways that lead to political and social change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we always really found it kind of explicitly with that idea in mind. So it was a coming together of a lot of different like thinkers and organizations and what was then the sort of new economy space to recognize that there was a need for some kind of connection point and an umbrella that could help to house and make clear what these different ideas and initiatives meant and to move beyond critique of the current economic system to support with with crafting and articulating a hopeful vision that could motivate and, and align efforts towards those aims. Now, for me, for example, like we see, like the well-being economy is not the same. Like it's the same. It's not like a model, right? It's not a, an economic model the way that some of the other um, new economy ideas are. But it's meant to hopefully be a picnic bonfire by which to be able to amplify and support the work that's happening by degrowth or solidarity economy or um, donut economics or you know we see them all as very important pieces of this alternative paradigm and system. 
for the future. And and ultimately, I think what I believe that we need diversity of strategies and approaches. Yeah, because we there's different kinds of messages um, and avenues that are going to work for different people and in different places, and they all have value. And so, rather than feeling like it's a competition in this space, it's really to help to support and amplify and cheer on the incredible work by others that is happening and to just see how we can support in whatever way of, of connecting those dots. No, that's fantastic. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, I want to end just uh, with three quick questions uh, that are more personal about your own perspectives and, and perceptions. And, and the first one is, um, given that this is all quite challenging and the system is, is not leading to well-being, what do you see in society that gives you inspiration and energy? Mm. Yeah. Well, there's quite a lot, but I should also say that for me, as I mentioned earlier, like I'm definitely a bit like an optimist and I, whenever I travel the world, for example, and I've traveled and lived in a lot of places, one of my favorite things about it is that it requires me to, to depend on others more than I would do in my own like town or home. Cause I'm not, I'm going to need to ask people for direction somewhere, how to figure out something or, um, support with, you know, if, if I lose, I don't know, my legs and my, my bags. And I'm always just blown away with how much people are willing to go out of their way to support and take time to help me. Yeah. And that to me is like a small little example, but I think people are good. And I think we, we genuinely do want to, want to be of service and support one another. And I think we're just currently in a system that really encourages some more selfish um, and self-serving ways of, of being. And so for me, it's about being a lot kinder to ourselves and others and a lot harder on the system. Um, Cause in the end, yeah, I think we're all, we're all trying to do the best we can for ourselves and others. I love that. Thank you. Uh, the next question is, have you read or seen or heard anything recently that really challenged your views or, or made you think in different ways? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think for me right now, something that's been really challenging a lot of my own worldview is, is I've been reading some and listening more to like indigenous and first Nations thinkers and, and speakers. Um, and for one, for example, like I, earlier I said, Oh, we're going to connect in with a bunch of leaders around Vermont and I was, I was speaking with this guy Chips and Ghost Horse who's uh, like a, from the Lakota people and he was saying we don't use the term leaders because it implies followers yeah, and rather we should be walking alongside and I was like oh wow yeah you know it's like, and how in in indigenous language there isn't there aren't really nouns like objects things are verbs like they have, everything is has energy and is of movement. And how in English we tend to like really essentialize. And that idea for me, like I'm still really wrestling with a lot and trying to align with like, you know, my worldview of, of objects and things and, and rather really, yeah, recognizing that like a mountain, water, whatnot, like it's a, it has its own force as well. So that has been something that's been, yeah, playing with my brain quite a bit recently and, if anybody's interested, the book Sand Talk is really amazing um, because normally when we talk about the, the like indigenous perspectives, it's from a Western perspective and we're sort of analyzing it. Whereas this one is taking like a, an Aboriginal Australian perspective and looking at Western knowledge and conceptions of the world, right? And that's like a very interesting swap and it's a really powerful book. Wow, that sounds fantastic! Yeah, thanks for the recommendation. And then, or also braiding sweetgrass. I don't know if you've read braiding sweetgrass. I haven't yet, but here. I feel like I'm the only person that hasn't. I keep hearing about it all the time. <laughs> I just need to, I just need to buy it and read it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Thanks, thanks again for the push. <laughs> 
And then the last question is, you know, uh, for some people, this can be quite overwhelming. I love the fact that you're an optimist and I really appreciated your view, but even you sometimes might get a little down. I'm just wondering what gives you a sense of peace and joy amongst all of this? Yeah. Uh, so for me, I'll just say really personally, I, I hope my philosophy is a little bit that everything happens for a reason. And I'm also master of my own destiny. And those things are seemingly philosophically inconsistent, but I think there's just a little bit of faith there that, I don't know, there's a lot that's out of my control. And to sort of accept that, but also to know that I can, you know, like I can be, like I'm here for a purpose and there's something that I'm here that I'm meant to do and, and my actions, yeah, have impact and can ripple in the world. But those two things together, I guess, help me to maybe not take myself too seriously, if that makes sense. Um, whilst also being, yeah, having optimism and, and focus. And when I get really down all the world, which I do sometimes, but, you know, it seems really sad. There's this article, a short article by Howard Zinn called The Optimism of Uncertainty. And, and he talks about how we tend to as humans to look at the current system and to assume that it's going to continue on in, in perpetuity. But the reading of history tells us that anything but that, right? That like small groups of individuals or, or you know, different kinds of seemingly sporadic movements against all odds, whether that's all the money or power or bombs in the world armed with just joy and laughter or, you know, like conviction have totally transformed um, systems seemingly overnight. And so that article and just knowing that, yeah, things change um, and that we, yeah, we are we are in a moment of, of that profound paradigm change and that we can be a part of it is, is something that gives me quite a bit of hope. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for making time. I've really enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate you chatting with us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Brian. I really, I really enjoyed speaking with you as well. What a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed talking with Amanda. I have to say, I love the way she melds this optimism with a really well-balanced critique of what's going on and sort of insights on how to overcome that. I think she has a tremendous vision and I found her conversation and her work to be extremely inspiring. Thanks as always to the executive producers of Crossing the Chasm, Dan Phillips, Cody Bayless. I wanna thank Anodyne Diversion for the music and as always, thank you all the listeners for checking in. I really appreciate it and hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in again, take care. (laughs) 